Hello, everybody, and welcome to yet another exciting episode of the Midnight Mass podcast. Terror is going to reach out and get you this week. Speaking of terror, let me introduce my fantastic co-host, the one, the only, it's Michael Verratti. Well, hello, hello, Peaches. And you know what they say about sitting too close to the television. It's bad for you. So I hope you've been keeping a safe distance. Oh, I have. And I feel like I'm consumed and surrounded by all things terror, followed by a word that starts with V. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. You have had quite the month at the time of the release of this recording. It's Halloween week. So first and foremost, happy Halloween, listeners. But also, Peaches has been in the midst of Terror Vault, her amazing haunted attraction in San Francisco, which I was lucky enough to go experience earlier this month. And who boy, I'm still shaking a little bit. You got initiated. I sure did. Our faithful, diehard listeners might notice my voice is a little... Smoky, sultry. Smoky, sultry. A little, um, you know, cereal mom. Um, So I... uh, you know, I scream at the show. I jump in and I get some scares. And then, of course, I pay the price. Also, I think, uh, you know, you're just surrounded by fog and haze for hours and hours and hours. And I think that actually affects my voice after a while. Right. So I'm glad that you were able to join us for the initiation. And it means a lot to me that you were able to come up. And you came up the same. I think it was the same weekend that Jinx and Dela came up, which was lovely. And Our mutual ghoul friend, Darren Stein and Kate Romero, they're coming up uh, this weekend, as well as Trixie Mattel is flying up to attend. So it's always nice when your friends come to support a project as big as this. And, uh, you know, I, I don't often tell you. Um, you you got to see this show, you know, and this year I'm, I'm telling my friends, oh, no, you got to see this show. And I will second that. I think this show is phenomenal. I've loved the Terror Vault every year that I've gone, but I really do think that this year's theme of the show taps into a very, very specific cultural and societal fear and discussion. I don't want to give too much away, but uh, I think that if you have been paying attention to Peach's interests, but also to true crime, this is the show for you. They know, you know, if you're, <laughs> if you're a listener of the of the Midnight Mass podcast, you know that I'm obsessed with cults. I myself am a cult leader, of course. That's yes. been my aspiration for years. I'm a cult movie leader, I guess. It's weird to say I love cults. It's not that I love cults, because I don't, but I am fascinated by my own religious damage being raised Catholic and then connecting that experience with every cult and every sort of, you know, brainwashed, indoctrinated sort of experience and realizing, oh, you know what, they're all the same, whether it's MAGA or Scientology or Catholicism, whatever it is, it's all the same. Well, when you come from the world of horror, as we do, cults are especially fascinating because there's a macro kind of terror to it. If one person comes into a room and says, I'm Jesus, you'd be like, okay, that person might be crazy. But the people you really need to worry about are the 10 other people who are like, yes, he is. That, yeah. it's like a catching kind of madness that is deeply fascinating and, of course, has informed so many horror stories over the years. In the late 20th century, 
Many, many, many people fell under the influence of television, and this week's film is all about the dangers of what's coming through the boob tube. That's right, we're talking about 1986's Terror Vision, written and directed by Ted Nicolau, and starring Mary Warrenoff, Garrett Graham, Diane Franklin, Chad Allen, and an asymmetrical booger from Beyond the Stars. I love the timing of this film, not just because it's terror vision and I'm knee deep in terror vault. In some ways, I wonder if, you know, watching terror vision as a kid and just loving the title. I think it's such a great title when coming up with the idea for what to call our experience at the Mint back in 2018 when we started. I'm like, oh, I loved things like terror in the aisles, terror vision. I love the word terror. And I'm like, huh, maybe that's where it came from, terror vault. But this movie I saw way back when, it's another one of the Midnight Mass movies that I appreciated when I was a kid, but it did not become something I was obsessed with the way a lot of the movies of the 80s became my obsession where I watched them repeatedly. And so I, I um, always knew what it was, but revisiting it today, what a pleasure, what a total treat. I actually really appreciate it more as an adult, knowing more about the movie industry and you know knowing um, more about just the effect of television but the thing I will say that is the most relevant to me right now is I truly believe aliens are going to appear in the not so distant future. Yes. Call me crazy. I know. I, I love that. I just judged all the people who are um, part of cults and religious. And then I turn around and go like, I believe in aliens and you should too. This is something I really believe. So watching terror vision again, I was kind of like, yeah, yeah, this is this is the way it's gonna happen. It's, it's coming. They're they're gonna reveal. I don't know if they'll come through the TV, but you know, somehow True. or another. As a kid who used to listen to Coast to Coast AM uh, in in my youth and be terrorized <laughs> by what? Our... what is that? Do you not know Coast to Coast no. AM? There are gonna be some uh, listeners out there that are gonna be like, oh, peaches, and other people are also gonna want to be introduced to it. Well, at least I'm not one of those people who pretends I'm cool and acts like I know about things I don't. Right. Well, I mean, and I think it's cool to not know things because then you get to learn about. Them, it's not know? like coast to coast AM sounds cool. Well, what it was <laughs> and, and is, I believe there's a new iteration of it out there. It was uh, during my youth hosted by a guy named Art Bell. And he would host this show that was all sort of about metaphysical and otherworldly things. And he would have people who were... Uh, claiming to have been abducted or having encounters with aliens or have sightings of cryptids or who had attended an exorcism or seen the chupacabra. Like there are famous episodes that have entered like oh. Americana, like because there is allegedly somewhere in Portland uh, where, or maybe it's Seattle where there's just a hole in the ground that is bottomless. It's like, and that was a whole thing. Like, so every week he would talk to people, scholars and writers and people who called in uh, about the supernatural in the world. And when you're a little kid living uh, kind of in rural America, I think I first discovered it when we were living in the middle of nowhere in Colorado. And then when we moved to Pennsylvania, I kind of kept up. You believe it because it's on the radio and it's creepy out there. It's kind um, of like X-Files meets War of the Worlds and it's actually a radio show. But all that to say, it was also my first sort of introduction to um, spooky radio. And so when I first got into the world of podcast, I was sort of just like, I'm kind of doing my own little queer horror version of Coast to Coast. And now here we are full circle with Peaches talking about the arrival of aliens. 
This movie is very much emblematic of a specific era of horror films. I think that it's important to note that this week's film brings us back to the universe of Charles Band, who we previously talked about when we did Puppet Master. And if you recall during the Puppet Master episode, we talked about how Puppet Master was sort of the flagship of Charles' company Full Moon Features. Well, this is from the era when Charles was in charge of Empire Pictures, which gave us such movies as Reanimator and From Beyond and Dolls and Terror Vision and Troll. It's an incredible catalog. Yeah, this kind of like hyper-colored, sticky, gooey monster kind of subsection of horror that we don't really get today. I mean, Mm -mm. they exist in some ways, but this to me is sort of like a pinnacle um, subgenre of the 80s that he and these filmmakers were really responsible for curating. And... Terror Vision, in many ways, is a jewel in the crown of that particular subgenre because it embodies so much. It embodies the 80s of the 80s. It embodies the sticky monsters of the 80s. It's got a beautiful color palette. It's got Mary Warnoff. This is a movie that's kind of tailor-made for us. This week, we have maybe the most important guest we could have asked for. Joining us right now is not only the writer and director of the film we're here today to talk about, but also true horror royalty. It's Ted Nicolau, and we're talking all things television right now. I dance by the light of the TV screen all night long. I watch the Medusa's eyes turn green, but my own reflection I've never seen. Welcome back, listeners. When planning our celebration of TerraVision, we knew we simply had to speak to our next guest, because without him, the film wouldn't exist. Beyond being the writer and director of this beloved tale of alien broadcast, he's a celebrated filmmaker whose many contributions to the world of horror and genre cinema continue to delight generations of fans. Not only is he the filmmaker and creative force behind the acclaimed Subspecies series of films, but his long resume includes such titles as Bad Channels, Remote, and Don't Let Her In, among many others. Beyond directing, and of particular note to listeners of this podcast, he was also the editor of queer horror classic Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker, as well as Terror Trap and Ghoulies. Unquestionable horror royalty, he's a writer, director, and so much more. It's Ted Nicolau. Ted, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much, Michael Peaches. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. It is a total thrill. And, you know, Michael could have gone on and on and on because you have worked on some of the coolest movies. You've created amazing movies. But, of course, we'll get started with the movie we're here to celebrate today, which is Terror Vision. And it's really nice to have someone who created a movie on the show. And it's a treat for us whenever that happens, because our normal first opening question is to an obsessed cult fan. Where did you discover Terror Vision? How did you first see it? But you created it. So could you talk a little bit about how that began? I was working at uh, Empire Pictures, which was Charles Band's company. And I started out as an editor working for him. And at a certain point, he produced a movie called uh, Dungeon Master, where he was testing a number of new directors because he was about to expand the company greatly. So um, I got to direct a little episode of that film. And then I went on, kept editing movies for him, but I let him know I wanted to direct. And um, at a certain point, he planned three movies to be theatrically released. And one of them was Terror Vision. He basically produced posters for these movies 
and then would kind of bring directors or writer directors in and show them the poster and say, what do you what do you think of this? So he brought me in, showed me the poster for Terrorvision, which was basically kind of a generic neighborhood and a monster coming out of a TV set and uh, said, what do you think about this one? And and it seemed kind of goofy to me. And I asked him if I could make it a comedy uh, science fiction movie. And even though he was not really known for comedy at the time, uh, he said, sure, let, why not? So that's basically how it began with a poster and a meeting with Charles Band in his office. And uh, I had edited some movies for John Beekler, who was the creature designer of television. So I kind of knew what I was getting into, and which was another reason why I asked if I could make it a comedy. I love this story about it being a poster first, because I think a lot of cult fans who are familiar with the movie Ed Wood, there's a famous scene in that movie where they ask, do you have a script? No, but we have a poster. And in this case, that's literally true. What I'm really fascinated by, because even though it starts with this image that Charles Band presents to you, you get to run with creating what the story is behind that. And looking at some of the films in your filmography, like Bad Channels and Remote to some extent, it seems that you are very interested in our interaction with media and obsession with media. So I'm wondering sort of how the story itself manifested and if there is kind of a more meta draw for you towards these kind of stories. I grew up an avid watcher of television as a kid after school. Every day it would be, you know, Armist Brooks and I Love Lucy and the Three Stooges. So television was a huge part of my childhood. And a couple of movies really imprinted in my brain in that time. And one of them was Invaders from Mars, the original film that was such an expressionistic kind of masterpiece of like very uh, sparse science fiction. And 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T, another expressionistic children's movie. And both those movies, I saw a little bit of them on television and didn't see the whole film. And so that they kind of stuck in my brain like an earworm when you hear a song and you just know like a portion of the song. I have a love of media and television. And of course, a monster coming out of your television set just automatically draws your mind to garbage coming out of a television set. And so basically, I started out from the premise of a monster coming from a TV set uh, who are the people that he invades? And I kind of set out to uh, alienate the audience a little bit from the characters so that we could be entertained by their being slaughtered by the monsters. And at the time, I kind of like searched for kind of archetypes of Los Angeles culture, you know, whether it's like kind of the swingers of the valley, the survivalists, new wave kids, and kind of my brain kind of works in a way that I don't retain specific information very well, but I retain a big kind of brew of stuff in my head and can kind of call on that to create a story. And so basically from the idea of a set of characters that were alienated from kind of grew this story of television. I love that you talk about your reason behind making the characters the way you've made them, because I know for me, it's one of the reasons I love this movie so much is because the characters are just so unique and kind of baffling in this wonderful 
delicious way that you know only exists i think sometimes in genre movies or transgressive films where you kind of are more comfortable taking risks and with the swingers who live in this you know kind of sex palace you know raising their kids <laughs> and their bizarre you know uh, grandpa who's a, a crazy survivalist you've got this incredible cast who really bring these characters to life I actually had the pleasure of getting to know Mary Warnoff and doing a show with her, but I'm a fan first and I love her so much. And anytime she shows up in a movie, I think she's such a great scene stealer and so strong. And so, you know, she is so excellent in this film, but the whole cast is great, you know, and I'm wondering if you can talk about the casting and working with the actors. The casting of Terravision was like one of the great strokes of good fortune uh, in all of the movies that I've had the chance to make uh, in that at that time, Empire was paying at least kind of like the Actors Guild uh, minimum and maybe even a little bit more. And so I pretty much was able to call in a lot of people that I that I was a fan of. And Mary Warnoff in, in particular was uh, kind of a denizen of a nightclub that we used to go to a lot called Club Lingerie on uh, Sunset Boulevard. And I would see her there like every Friday, Saturday night. And she was such a forbidding almost kind of presence. She's a very, very powerful woman. But when it came time to cast the film, I, I thought, wow, this is my opportunity to reach out to her. Um, and I reached out to her for the part of the Elvira hostess Medusa, thinking that she would be amazing in that role. But when she came in to audition, she said, you know, that's this is the role that most people would uh, would bring me in for. But the part I really like is is uh, Mrs. Putterman, the mother of the family, which to me was hilarious because as I got to know her, she's like the least kind of maternal person that you could ever imagine. <laughs> and it really worked for that character because she's she kind of tortures and torments her kids. Uh, and is so selfish. And she brought so much to that character. And it, in the same way that every actor that we managed to bring onto the film, plus the movie so much, when Mary heard that Garrett Graham was going to play Stanley Putterman, she was just over the moon, man. She was so excited about working with him. And um, Diane Franklin came in and just nailed the part with a certain... I mean, that character had to be both kind of bubbly and airheaded and real sweet and positive and also super self-centered and selfish and, and uh, you know, manipulative. And uh, Diane kind of coming out of, I think, Last American Virgin probably was looking for something that wasn't just kind of like the romantic ideal character. And so she came in and, and nailed that part. Who else? Burt Remsen. We saw a lot of old Hollywood leading men from the 40s and 50s for that role. And Burt came in and just had the cantankerousness of Grandpa. And he had a bum leg that I think had been crushed in an onset accident at one time. So he was a little bit worried about being able to handle the physicality of the role. But I said, don't, you know, don't worry about it, man. You are so perfect for this role. We'll cut around you however we have to. Garrett Graham. Another one who just came in and nailed that role and made it his own. Then there's John Grise, who was like maybe a little bit old for the role that uh, he was to play. 
but he came in with a wig and, and a black leather jacket. And he's a serious, serious actor, but he can be so goofy, as we've seen in, you know, later films of his, that he just kind of won us all over, you know. Then there was Chad Allen, who came in as like sort of the only sane one of the whole family. He was like your perfect American kid, really, you know. Um, so, so yeah, every step of the way, the cast really plussed the movie incredibly. And, and the, the script was the script, and they basically performed the script, but elevated it to a level of cartoonishness that was sort of unique and maybe was why the film was such a critical kind of failure at the time because it was so unlike any movies that were coming out of Hollywood in those days. I like that you describe Chad Allen's character as the only sane one in the family because when you think about it, that kid really didn't have a chance, whether there's an alien from the TV or not. And when you were talking earlier about Mary Warnov, the fact that she terrorizes him and she basically terrorizes the house, that's something that I think is really interesting about this movie because during the 80s, especially when we have these sort of like sci-fi Amblin kind of family films, they're all sort of centered on the kids. But this household is very clearly about the adults. The architecture of the house is about the adults. The kids are sort of like an afterthought. And what I think really, really helps set the tone of the movie is your locations. And I want to talk a little bit about that because I heard that you scouted swingers, pads to get ideas, and then took that to Italy to, to make happen. Yeah, the uh, production designer, uh, Giovanni Natalucci, came over to Los Angeles when uh, we started pre-production. We didn't actually go out to a bunch of swingers pads, but we gathered, back in those days, the location services had big books of photographs of houses. And so we we kind of looked for porn houses and, and, and looked at those kind of places and looked at basically old art of, of Roman kind of uh, places. And he came away with knowing what I, what I was looking for, which was the swingers pad to end all swingers pads. He went back to Rome and started designing. And it wasn't until I came over to Rome to start pre-production there that I kind of walked onto the set and saw how much he had kind of plus the vision of what we talked about into this crazed household, you know, with a conversation pit and erotic art on the walls and the little bar where a Spiro is mixing drinks in the, the pleasure palace, which is like the jacuzzi to end all jacuzzis, the bomb shelter. We kind of researched bomb shelters and all of that. And when I walked on the set, I was like, oh my God, the set plus the actors now you put all that together and you have something that is like a living cartoon, really. You know, the colors, yes. then the costumes that he designed for the film. Again, it was also Baroque and garish and cartoon-like. You know, it was sort of like a freight train that I just kind of grabbed hold of and took it to the wherever it was going to take us, you know. And it was still the script, which is what's funny is that the, the script kind of described all of this but when you bring it to life it's just beyond what you can imagine you know the bedroom with the the bedspread and the again kind of bnd art on the wall you know it's just like incredible <laughs> yeah the, the production design mixed with the actors mixed with the script it's just all like this pushed 
insane reality. Like you say, it's almost like a cartoon. And then the whole way that it starts and it opens and you've got the Fibonacci's. And I wonder if you could talk about the music and how that all came together, because what an incredible way to start a film, you know, from the moment <laughs> the movie begins, I know, oh, this is a movie for me. That's really funny. You know, uh, the same nightclub, Club Lingerie, was really a, a, the place to be on uh, weekends back in those days. And the Fibonacci's played there regularly, too. And I probably saw Mary Warnoff there with them. And they had such a unique, kooky kind of new wave sound and yet so musically complex and intelligent music, you know. And their, their lead singer, uh, Maggie Song, was just like so transforming to watch her on on stage i love their sound when we had finished editing the film and it was time to find the music for the film i reached out to lux interior from the cramps oh and brought him in and showed him the film we smoked a joint in the projection booth <laughs> and then sat down and watched the film and he sort of wanted to do it but he was about to go on tour with Dream Syndicate immediately, so the scheduling didn't work out. So then we reached out to Frank Zappa. Mm -hmm. And I can imagine, you know, what the movie would have been with a Frank Zappa score, you know. Um, <laughs> he sat, he came in with his son and, and wife, and they watched the film. And, and then when he asked, what was the schedule? When did he, we need the, the score? And it was like something like eight weeks or something like that. And and he kind of declined after that because I don't think he was he wanted to work that quickly. So then uh, Richard Band was going to do the the score, who's Charlie Band's brother, also a very good uh, composer. But we needed the main title song and we needed some of the incidental music in the film. And so that that was when the idea of the Fibonacci's kind of like seemed like a natural to me. You know, to, if we could get that sound to open the movie and put people in that kind of a frame of mind. And uh, luckily, they agreed to do it and wrote some great songs for us. One of the things that you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation was your familiarity with the work of John Carl Beekler, who did the monster in this movie. And uh, I know from the making of documentary that's on the Scream Factory disc that you specifically said to him that you wanted him to create a monster that was very different from the kind of monster that he was known for. And I was just hoping you could speak a bit to that. And also the fact that he was directing Troll at the same time you were making this movie. When we were in pre-production in Los Angeles, he was about to go to Rome because Charlie had bought the Dino De Laurentiis studios just outside of Rome, old kind of crumbling studio, but you know, with giant sound stages and a great production complex and everything. So John was about to go direct Troll, which was his baby. And uh, we were all kind of taking Italian lessons together, me and John and his wife, and trying to prepare ourselves, you know. But he had a great shop and he had a, a lot of young kind of sculptors and artists and craftspeople working with him. So we kind of sat down and started talking about the monster. And for me, John's monsters uh, were all more kind of humanoid, let's say. And all their faces had a little bit of John Beekler in their faces, too. Um, <laughs> and they were all a little bit kind of latexy, let's say, and and not perfect, not like realistic to life, more like sculpted things. And so I knew we were going to be working with puppeteering of, of latex. And I wanted something 
not humanoid, but something asymmetrical and goofy looking and really stupid looking, but a little bit endearing. And somehow in my mind, I had it, you know, a tentacle with an eyeball, one tentacle and one pincer. So he was, you know, asymmetrical, even in his limbs and a little bit like a giant booger or something, you know, with (laughs) one big eye and a mouth that would be like horrific. So we kind of went round and round and, and Cleve Hall who worked for him and Robert Kurtzman and, uh, you know, some of the people that worked for his team, Mike Deke, I think they got it maybe more than John because we really, John and I went round and round and, and kind of argued about it because what I was asking for was something so different, you know, but his guys got it. And so they went to work on this creature and, and I wanted some kind of stupid tail that would kind of flap like a dog tail, but would slap the ground and leave splats of slime on the on the floor. <laughs> um, so they created this creature that had everything. It was like asymmetrical, stupid looking, one big eye, one small eye, a goofy grinning mouth, a bunch of little carroty feet, and then the big flapping platypus tail. And it was truly ridiculous and amazing. That's kind of how we ended up with that creature. It was basically a lot of arguing and pushing for something completely weird and stupid looking. And then the help of his team that just really were into it. They got it over to Rome and it was like, took two people inside this latex casing to operate the inner workings and a couple more people to operate the tentacle and all of that. And it was summertime in Rome on an unair-conditioned set. So it was brutal for the team that were that was operating the creature. So brutal that we ended up having to bring in a big air conditioning unit from the airport to kind of blow cold air up the creature's ass to kind of keep them cool. <laughs> um, it was, you know, another great kind of lucky touch for this movie, you know, the, the sets, the cast, the costumes. And then the creature made it, something like something you've never seen before you know yeah i think that the 80s of it all is so fabulous <laughs> in this movie and we know that it was pushed to some degree but i also love that it's like well this isn't a nostalgic look back at the 80s this was made in the 80s this is what things looked like you know these weird patrick nagel artwork on the walls that's kind of manipulated with the tits and the you know the <laughs> the daughter and the the daughter's boyfriend their looks you know people did look like that and those were the looks but one of the things about the 80s that i think is so fabulous are that people invested time and money and energy into these creatures, into these practical effects, into giant puppets and mechanical things that, you know, we just don't see as much of anymore because of CGI. And, you know, the the work that it took to get something like that built and then brought to another Mm -hmm. country. Thank God, because it looks so good and it wouldn't look the same if it were CGI. Maybe I'm old fashioned or something, but yeah, CGI helps you when nothing else will work. But the idea of having something on the set that is basically acting with the actors, there's a photograph of me that I love where I'm kind of directing the puppeteers through the mouth of the creature, where the creature becomes like a another actor on the set and the actors can interact with him. And if the puppeteers are on the ball, they can, even when you're not rolling camera, they can keep that creature alive. And I feel the same way about location shooting. The thought of shooting on a big green green stage with a couple of 
live elements just seems like it's against what is challenging about making movies, which is finding the places that express the mood or the the sensibility of, of your movie. And I love that process. And maybe it's going to become harder and harder as the old beautiful things get torn down and get replaced by, you know, modern structures. But for me, that's part of the fun of making movies is trying to find the places that express your film. Yeah. Peaches, I love that you brought up the sheer 80s-ness of this movie, because as we know, the 80s are a decade of excess, and that's one of their hallmarks. And one thing that we know about cult film fans is they always want more. And here in the hierarchy of this movie, we know that Charles Band is no stranger to sequels. We also know that through the subspecies movies, you enjoy an ongoing saga. And thank goodness, because every time you make one, I cannot wait to watch it. But was there ever any thought about a TerraVision 2? And if so, uh, or if not, what would your thoughts on that be? There wasn't at the time, and it's kind of strange. I think what happened was TerraVision, Eliminators, and Troll were the three kind of big theatrical releases for Charles Band at that time. And he had a small unit of distributor guys that were going to, you know, make the movies, get them into the theaters, and then the limited theatrical run would propel VHS sales, and that was kind of the end game for Charlie at the time, was uh, rentals. But the three films did not perform at the box office like they hoped. They really didn't publicize them very well. And so I think that kind of quashed any idea of sequels to any of those films. Well, Troll actually had some sequels in, in the end, but Troll 2 Troll Two wasn't even Charles Band. It was like just some other production company. So over the years, Diane Franklin and I talk every once in a while, and we think about how could you make a sequel to Terrorvision? And you could now with streaming, it would be a whole other avenue for the creature to kind of get out into the world. I don't know that Charlie Band would want to make that sequel or would be able to spend the money that it would take to make it because Back in the day, Terrorvision cost maybe a million dollars, a million and a half dollars. And that's like a huge budget out of Charlie Band's reach right now. So as much as I'd love to do it, you know, I think it's not going to happen. And I think probably in Charlie's mind, the Bad Channels was kind of the sequel to Terrorvision, you know, yet another monster coming out of another bit of media. But I resisted that film for a long time. I was like, no, no, no. You know, I did Terrorvision. I don't want to do a radio version of it, you know, and eventually succumbed to the temptation (laughs) and did it, you know. (laughs) Obviously, your long relationship with Charles Band and the work that you've done together is incredible. But before, if the internet is correct, before that, you may have gotten your start on what I would consider to be one of the best movies ever made in the history of all time. And you were a young crew member on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. For me, that's like the holy grail of horror movies, especially as as far as small budgeted independent movies with young people. It to me is literally maybe one of the best movies ever made. And so what was that like? When we did Texas Chainsaw Massacre, we were film students. Uh, Daniel Pearl, who was a cinematographer, was like my best friend through film school. And he kind of brought me on. I, I had been a boom operator for another sound man named Courtney Gooden, who worked in Austin. And Courtney was doing another film. So I was kind of like the last choice that, you know, that they could find a guy who knew sound and could do the production mixing. So basically, 
Daniel recommended me to Toby. I got hired to be the sound recordist on Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And that movie was as brutal as the actual film is and feels. It sort of felt that way on the set, too, because we were kind of like exposed to the elements working out in north of Austin and near Georgetown in a a little farm. Toby was kind of a madman and just pushed everybody to the limit. Every day was kind of spent waiting while Toby and Kim Henkel kind of decided how we were going to shoot what we would shoot that day. So we were sitting in the heat and, um, you know, daddy long leg spiders on the walls of these places and sitting around like the dining table full of like head cheese and chicken heads and Mm. all the stuff that was just rotting over a period of 27 hours on the most notoriously long day of the shoot. The imagery was so powerful, the the leather face and the chainsaw and hanging people on meat hooks. It was so staggeringly horrifying, but we weren't sure what the movie was going to be like, you know, and it wasn't until like a year of editing that we saw kind of what we had been a part of, you know, and it was amazing how real that film feels. And in Austin in those days, if you went out of the city a little ways, you could find yourself surrounded by some real odd characters, you know, it happened to me a couple of times. So the movie captured something that was really real, especially for hippies back in those days, you know, like Austin was kind of like the island of liberal people. Go outside of the city and you could find yourself surrounded by some real crazed rednecks. So the movie captured that really well. You know, thinking about your filmography, as well as taking into account that story, you have a really unique way of traveling. You get to go to places through the lens of horror movies, because here you're in Texas in this very unique way. I know that you've shot movies in Romania and Serbia. Obviously, Terevision was shot in Rome. What a way to see the world and what a very specific lens with which to see the world. I've been super lucky in that way that uh, I was sort of like the person, maybe because I could get along with crews everywhere, that Charlie would send me as kind of like the first one to go try out a new country. And probably the most praised version of that was sending me to Romania in 1990 after, you know, like six months after the revolution to scout locations for subspecies. And it was like the scariest, most foreign place that I'd ever been in my life and was literally gray, sad, nothing in the stores, crappy food in the restaurants, candy bars for a dollar in the hotels and wine for a dollar and people getting drunk to kind of like survive. And it was both sad and horrifying and yet kind of liberating too, because the theatrical tradition there was so strong and the theaters were so strong and the actors had a whole kind of subterranean life too. The theater was great. And then after theater, there were these bars that everybody would go to. And and it was like Paris in the 20s. So I got introduced to that by Vlad Paunescu, who was the director of photography, and his wife, Juana. They sort of held my hand through the weirdness and showed me kind of what was beautiful there, you know. So so Romania was, you know, I love that place. And, and I got to work there over the course of 10 years, like a lot of movies, kids' movies and horror films. And Serbia, I got to do Serbia recently, and that was 
another kind of adventure. You see the place with totally different eyes than the people that live there. You find the cinema people and and, and people that make movies are generally kind of the same everywhere, you know, and (laughs) and you sort of understand each other immediately. You talk about the films that you love. And so the process of getting to meet a whole new crew of people from a totally different culture or get drunk with them and hang out and walk the location scouts with them and pull them into a unified vision of what the movie is going to be. To me, that's like the greatest, most exciting part of life, you know. And plus, I get to travel and get paid to do it and have a per diem to go eat and drink. You know, it, it really is. It's sort yeah. of ruined me for vacationing now when I have to spend my own money, man. Wait, I have to pay for this meal? Yeah. <laughs> really? That is a good perk. I feel very grateful as well that like I've been able to do something that allows me to travel for work. And um, often I say to young people, like, if you want to change your perspective, if you want to evolve as a human being, if you want a real education, invest in traveling and go see yeah. the world and go work in other countries. And it really, I think, especially for Americans, it's like one of the best things you can do, you know, to really just kind of evolve. Yeah, I totally relate to that. But I want to ask this question, which I know is ridiculous in some ways, but I I just can't stop myself. Um, (laughs) We do a lot of talking on the show about how certain movies are prophetic, or they're ahead of their time. And with this film, in particular, especially the sequences where the alien is on the television trying to warn earthlings about what is coming and this sort of like this this sort of toxic disaster that is heading their way and i'm looking at the world i'm looking at the news i'm looking at climate change i'm looking at congressional hearings around ufo's here we are at a place where Things like your movie, which at a time seemed like the furthest thing from reality and really was fiction before it was science, are sort of kind of turning around. And I'm wondering, what is your take on all of this these days? Are you a believer? Have you been a believer? You know, where are we at with aliens? (laughs) <laughs> oh, man, I, I like I said before, I grew up loving science fiction films of the 50s. And uh, probably the one movie that I saw the trailers for to drive in theater, but never made it to Dallas was Earth versus Flying Saucers, where the flying saucers are crashing into the Washington Monument and all of that. And to me, that was like, oh, my God, I wish I could see that film. And I didn't get to see it till I was in college and had a film society and we brought it in to to watch it you'll see clips from it in terrorvision too because i just love that film i do see now that terrorvision had sort of this sense of what was coming you know in the world you know but like i say i'm not an intellectual and i'm and i don't set out to expound on any themes in a way that the film is Yeah, it was a satire of garbageness of television, but I do love the idea of visitors from other planets. And I grew up watching the skies for UFOs and have not seen one. I've seen, (laughs) you know, I was in New Mexico and people were like, there's one right now. But there were probably uh, satellites going by, you know, but I have a weird sensitivity to like, uh, I believe in all sorts of things, magic. And yet I'm super skeptical of most claims of magic and um 
I just have to believe that we're not alone in the universe and that somebody is watching us. I hope, you know, and I hope they're not planning <laughs> right. to eat us, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's like, uh, but, bring it on. We need you. Come come save us. <laughs> well, yeah. unless they're going to eat us, as Ted points out. Now, yeah. in speaking to the prophetic nature of the film, you probably started to answer this. But as we're wrapping up, one question I like to ask every guest on the show, and it changes, you know, sometimes when we're speaking to cult fans, their relationship with these movies is different than the people who made them. But the thing about a cult film is that they are movies that stay with us through our lives, and even more so for the creators. And so I'm wondering if over the years since you first walked in and saw that poster and started developing the idea to now, knowing people are still talking about this movie decades later, how has your relationship with Terrorvision changed, if at all? And what do you want people who are discovering it for the first time to know? When we finished Terrorvision, we were like, wow, this is this is going to be so great. It's going to people are going to love it. And then you put it out in the world and you see that maybe 10 percent of the people love it and 80 percent of the people don't get it and hate it. And the critics in particular were not fond of the film. So when it was released in theaters for the week that it was out, suddenly whatever dreams I had of Hollywood fame and stardom and a big successful movie kind of crashed. And it took me about a year really to kind of come out of that kind of daze of like a failure, you know, for a film that I still believe you can watch it multiple times because there's always something new you can find in it. I was really sad about that. The thing that kind of gave me a little glimmer of hope was that I knew there was like a certain crowd of oddball people, potheads, people that just enjoy science fiction films and cult movie kind of fanatics that actually loved that film even back then. And slowly, slowly, like I sort of imagined would happen that people would turn their friends on to the film and the cult kind of grew. And, and as difficult as it was for a long time to find a copy of the film, I guess the VHSs were still being passed around because as I would go to horror conventions and find more and more people bringing me television posters and more and more people that the movie meant a lot to them as kids. And I sort of imagined in my wildest fantasies that the kids that were watching television at 12 and 15 years old, someday were going to be artists and powerful people and, and all of that. So over time, whatever I was kind of sad about the movie turned into a real kind of sense of satisfaction, you know, that, okay, you fucking critics didn't like my movie, but somehow it has stood the test of time. And the very fact that it was so out of the mainstream of Hollywood has been kind of what has made it kind of endeared to the people that love it. And now if I go to a nightclub and see some bands playing, there's always one or two people there that are like, oh my God, you did television. I love that film. So it's kind of cool to me, you know, it's like better than having, you know, everybody love it at the time is to have people love it over time. That is every movie we do on the Midnight Mass Cult podcast. They are misunderstood <laughs> films by the general public and the mainstream boring people that, you know, um, don't know anything. Um, and then the real fans, the cults, they build, they they crawl their way to finding these movies. And then when they find a gem, they hold on to it forever. And it's something that becomes really special to them. And I hope that our listeners will help us by 
singing the praises of this film to all of the distributors out there who could help get Terror Vision on Night Flight or Shudder or Netflix or Hulu or HBO or whatever. Because one thing about doing the podcast is we all rely on streaming so much these days. And while you can see it on YouTube, it is not a high quality version, nor should, you know, we be watching movies on YouTube. You know, we need Ted to be getting a check for these streaming rights, you know. I don't get any checks. Watch the film any way you can. (laughs) (laughs) Well, here's the thing. Put it on the streaming service so the next time Ted goes to a convention, his line is three times as long. So we need to build the cult of Terror Vision and we need you listeners to help us and, you know, go ahead and tweet at and email, you know, your favorite cult movie distributors and say, we need Terror Vision. Yes, please do. That would be amazing. I'd love to see it on Tubi for everyone to have access to it. Now, Ted, where can people who want to keep up with your work find you? Uh, what's coming next? I know Subspecies 5, Blood Rise just came out. I was lucky enough to come to the screening in Los Angeles. It's a beautiful film. Where can people see that? Where can people see what's upcoming? What do you got? Subspecies Blood Rise is on uh, Amazon, Full Moon Streaming, Tubi, if you want to watch it for free, if you don't mind a few commercials. It's a great kind of addition, I think, to the subspecies saga and kind of brings Radu back and brings uh, Denise Duff back in uh, new characters, brings Kevin Spiritas back as a new character. And right now I'm kind of like... Uh, sitting at home waiting for, you know, inspiration. And I've got a couple of scripts that are out there that I'm hoping we can make. Uh, One kind of like a spiritual comedy road trip that's uh, kind of outside of anything that I do that would be uh, with Anna Sove and Jan Duke from the subspecies films, the guy who plays Lieutenant Marine, and a horror film that I wrote for some people and another one that I'm just kind of outlining now. So I'm, I'm staying busy, but I wish I was in production right now, but it's, uh, it's going to take some time. We can't wait to see what you have coming next. And we honestly cannot be more grateful that you chose to spend some time with us talking about this movie that we all love so much. And we appreciate it. And thank you so, so much for coming on the show today. Hey, thank you so much, Peaches and Michael. It's been a pleasure talking to you guys. And uh, yeah, spread the word, man. That's the way the television rolls. Spread the word. That was our interview with Ted Nicolau. What a treat to uh, get to probe the director himself all about his <laughs> creation. And uh, it's, it's an alien movie. I have to use that word. Of um, course. But, you know, I meant asking questions. Get your mind out of the gutter, Michael. Um, what a doll. He was so sweet and so humble and just a real joy to speak with. I also love how real he is. You know, like he totally. he spoke about the realities of making a movie like Terrorvision and the subsequent um sort of living with a movie that is not an immediate success or like comes out in an indie way and builds its audience. He talked about the struggles I don't know of it. anything about that. <laughs> he also spoke about the struggles of, uh, you know, just getting it into the hands of the audience, which you're speaking to. That's where we come in, the Midnight Mass audience, which I have to say, as our cult of listeners has grown over the years, and thank you so much for tuning in and telling your friends and also giving us such great reviews on uh 
iTunes and whatnot, our cult is growing. And all of you that subscribe to the Patreon, we we couldn't be more grateful. Uh, in fact, after Michael and I finish recording for this episode, we're going to be jumping onto the Patreon and doing one of our midnight mini masses. So if you want more midnight mass in your life, please subscribe to the Patreon. This is where it's been really satisfying to see that there are programmers and distributors who have actually been reaching out to us, to little old Mikey Verratti and Peachy Christ to say, <laughs> hey, would you guys cover this movie on your show? Or do you think this is a movie that we should be screening? That's so amazing. And we get to say to the listeners now, hey, let's make Terror Vision more popular. Let's bring it back. Let's celebrate. And let's help Ted get it in front of new eyes. Because I'll tell you right now, speaking of Terror Vault, which we brought up earlier, I get to work with a ton of young people who love this stuff. They love horror, but they need older people to tell them what to watch. Yeah. And I can tell you right now, if I share Terror Vision with the young Terror Vault cast members, they're going to eat it up. They're going to eat up that booger alien. And, you know, it's also a great way to discover the work of Ted Nicolau if you are just learning about him uh, because his body of work is so amazing and staggering. He not only did Terror Vision, as I mentioned in his intro, he's responsible for the subspecies movies, which I love. Everyone knows who listens to the podcast that I'm a sucker for some gothic vampires. He made a movie called Bad Channels, which features a lot of bands from the 80s. I think specifically Blue Oyster Cult and Martha Quinn from MTV in an acting role. He really has this very amazing amazing style and adaptable style that I think will speak to a lot of fans who really want to immerse themselves in fun horror. Absolutely. Well, that was a real treat. And God, I just I really like him. And, and it was just very special to have him on the show. And um, like you said earlier, Terrorvision is kind of that perfect example of a weird movie that is just, it, it's so bizarre. It has such a visual perspective that we don't see as much anymore. The discussion around the swinger art in this movie, yeah. the, the discussion around the puppet and the way that the puppet worked and, you know, him, him flying overseas to make this movie. I mean, what a great talk. It was just fabulous. But that's not all we have. It's not just one talk. We actually, as we like to do on the show, have uh, a super fan that we're going to speak to, a super fan who... You know, I actually become a fan of, thanks to Michael introducing me to their body of work. And not only is this person a super fan, but as a filmmaker and creator, you can see the tendrils of Terrorvision in their work because they recently were responsible for making a film all about the dangers of intrusive broadcast. We're about to talk to Knucklehead from Heebie TV all about Terrorvision right now. Our next guest is certainly familiar with strange signals and mysterious broadcasts. He, along with collaborators Eric Griffin and Adam Lenhart, is the creative force behind the film festival favorite Heebie-Jeebie TV, a sticky, scary, unabashedly queer ode to the late-night cable broadcasts of yesteryear. 
Not only that, this individual is one of the writers and stars of the acclaimed short film 18885 Blue You and can be regularly seen spreading the word of spookiness at such events and venues as Blobfest and the celebrated Mahoning Drive-In. Please welcome writer, director, actor, killer, cable box creator, and so much more. It's Knucklehead, a.k.a. Jake McClellan. Knucklehead, welcome to the show. Oh, here's $20, Michael. Oh, thank you for that lovely introduction. <laughs> that was so nice. Happy to be here. Uh, lovely to speak with the both of you. I worship at the altar of Midnight Mass. Big fans of both of you. So, yeah, I, I am a child of the popcorn, so excited to dive in. <laughs> well, thank you. Well, I, I'm really excited to get to know you better because Michael introduced me to the world of Knucklehead, and I am all in. I'm excited <laughs> to know you. I love what you're doing. I feel like you are a child of the popcorn who's becoming your own cult leader over on the East Coast. So before we dig into this incredible movie, will you tell the listeners, like, what was your inspiration and what is it exactly that you do? I'm a, mostly just a, a weird performer. I do a lot of character <laughs> work under the guise of Knucklehead, and I have a bunch of different characters I do. But yeah, I started just doing a lot of theatrical things growing up, and I've always been playing in different characters. And yeah, I started producing kind of like local Halloween events um, and performances, which led to me filming um, a movie about some of my characters with some of my great friends. So it's an honor to hear that from you, Peaches. Um, so yeah, welcome to the world of Knucklehead. Love it. Well, I think certainly, too, as the conversation goes on, we can talk about how the world that you come from is very intertwined with the world we're about to talk about. But first, before we get there, let's dig into Terrorvision. When did you first see this movie? When did you become obsessed with it? Why this film? When I first became aware of Terrorvision was in college. I think a lot of queer people during their maybe collegiate studies is when they kind of dig into their their weird niche cult films. And it was that that time early in freshman year where you're like, you know what? If I'm gonna be the weird gay guy in the group, if you will, I gotta I gotta study up. I gotta know my my films. And so I really tried to like take the time and torrent a lot of cult films during <laughs> my uh in, in my dorm and watch some things on YouTube. So I was just really just ingesting as much cult film as possible. I was watching Meet the Feebles. I was watching Forbidden Zone. If it was this weird, I need to know it and I need to I need to have that knowledge or just have it in my encyclopedia to pull out. Um, and Terrorvision was one of them. And it was one that didn't really slap me across the face at first. It was one that I, I knew I enjoyed, but it wasn't like a cult film that I think, you know, for some cult film lovers there's there's movies that change you as a person right where it's like there's pre-john waters life and there's post-john waters life and you know terrorvision was one that i kind of call like a like a boomerang cult film it's like it kept coming back and each time it came back i, I found more more to love about it and now i'm at a point where i just i, I absolutely love it i love films about tv it's just a, a fun genre so i totally agree with you i love the expression boomerang cult movie because when this film was suggested and brought to us by yourself and Michael um, and I talked about it, I said, oh, I really like that movie, but I haven't seen it in forever. But it didn't make maybe as strong an impression on me when I first saw it as well, when I was in my, you know, 80s VHS rental obsessed horror movie immersion period. That being said, of course, I love Mary Warnov. And so it's always kind of 
stayed in my mind for various reasons. And I knew it was weird, but watching it again, I have a whole new appreciation for it. Like it is so weird and so special and so unique. And it's not like other movies made around that time. And so many of those films are the same, except for the ones that you just mentioned. Clearly you like, you know, really unique films, Meet the Feebles, you know, Forbidden Zone. There's really nothing else like them. And I think Terror Vision fits into that category. Like what the fuck, you know, I just love it. But I I'm wondering as a younger person who's discovering these movies, you know, I, you know, was there in the eighties. I was there when this movie came out. What is it like watching a movie like that? Because to me, what really hit me over the head this time was, oh my God, this is so 80s and it was made in the 80s. So this isn't like Stranger Things where you go, oh, you have to take it all with a grain of salt. Of course, it's sort of, you know, it's the 80s on steroids because it's, you know, they're playing on nostalgia. It's like, no, this movie came out, what, in 1986 or something? And it is ridiculous but that was how people dressed and that's how people were so what's your take on the 80s and are you fond of that decade you know someone who probably wasn't there i wasn't there unfortunately but i do enjoy it a lot and you know watching it in in its 80s ness it also had an awareness of its decade too like even i think like the way susie dressed was even like okay we want cindy lopper but more give us drag cindy lopper right it, it felt like it knew it was a period piece before it left the period in a sense which is kind of interesting it's like it was poking at its own kind of nostalgicness before it even became nostalgic, which is not something I can really pinpoint any many other films. As we know, the film does not end well for the family. And uh, writer-director Ted Nicolau says that one of the things when they were constructing the movie is that if you know that the family dies, he doesn't want you to like them too much because then it would just be like a little too tough to handle. And so he, in constructing the movie, really looked at the stereotypes of the moment, the valley girl, the metal kid, the survivalists, which were really big in the 80s in the news, the idea that swingers were happening, and he lambasted it. But it works in a different way than Stranger Things because he's doing it while it's happening. And I think that that is both authentic and also a little more pointed because he's literally holding the mirror to culture as it's occurring. And I'm wondering, uh, that all of this to say, his notion that these are supposed to in some way be generally unlikable people. What's your take on that? Because I actually love all of the people in this movie. My gosh, it's like the thing with with gay people, queer people loving just the villains all the time. It's the same way. Like you you do want to hate. They're not that great people. And also, again, like you saying that, I think there are kind of like this like Simpsons family kind of vibe where it's like the daughter, the son, the grandpa, you know, that sort of thing. But yeah, they're okay people. But I think definitely the mother being the character I think to be the most entertaining and Susie as well. The little boy is sort of that innocuous 80s boy, you know, that every movie was centered around, you know, and we saw it over and over and over again, you know, the kid who has to save the family. We've seen it in this stuff. Actually, there was parts of this film that reminded me of the stuff in terms of its commentary on the 80s while the 80s were happening. But this one I liked because it, in a special way, it was transgressive and subversive in an unexpected way for a genre film where, I mean, God, even the production 
production design was so pushed and so bizarre and inspired by them being swingers that they designed this whole home for their like fucking sex nest, you know, with sunken, you know, living room couches that the, the boy and the grandfather sit on and a big pool that's actually just, I guess, a massive hot tub, you know, like things that I don't think really exist and all the like weird sort of Patrick Nagel artwork, but they're just like naked shapes and tits and things. So I just think like the production design of the film and what they were sending up is part of what makes it special. But the swinger thing we have to talk about because, you know, we are Midnight Mass where we're obsessed with our own queerness and sexuality. What's your take on the the whole swinger life? And what really sets this in an unlikable way to me is the dad's reaction to the uh, the guy they bring home. You know, it was so cliched and so tired. That's where they they really missed an opportunity. But of course, it was 1986. But yeah, I mean, I just loved the unapologetic perversion of it. What did you think about all the perversity? I thought the thing that was the most odd about it was the comfortability that they spoke about it with the family, right? Like the the, the horny off Patrick Nagel's chilling in the, the love nest, but it's also the living room for the family at the same time. Like <laughs> it was such a common thing just discussed among them that that was the thing that I felt the most off-putting. I do think there was funny moments about that, but yes, I also agree with the other part. It's like, oh, he was a renaissance man. Oh, that's what you mean by that. Womp womp. And I think maybe that maybe the biggest critique of it is that it could have been a lot more gayer. And it felt like the the swinginess was really, really kind of straight, <laughs> heavy handed to it. it. It didn't really add much to me. And I also thought, that yeah, it kind of created some uncomfortable moments in the film as well. Yeah, it's funny, too, because here's Mary Warnov wanting to have a swinging party and having sort of the realization that neither of the people they brought home are interested in her. You know, the idea <laughs> that she has struck out twice. But then uh, Garrett Graham, of course, is the one who has sort of the the gay panic of it all. I saw a really fun interview with Chad Allen, who plays Sherman, the little boy, and grew up to be uh, an actor, uh, keep acting. And he talked about how his parents were kind of deeply religious when he took on this film. And they somehow were like, okay with him being in this movie because they shot this movie in Europe. So they were like, well, he gets to go to Europe. But they had asked the filmmakers to kind of shoot him in a different frame. So he was never with the pornographic Art. Really? Yeah. I mean, I don't really, I'm not asking a question right now, but I thought you both would find that interesting. Yeah, that's so ridiculous. Absolutely. And even him just carrying a gun around, too, is also just strange. A kid running around with a gun. Yeah, they were fine with that. But, but don't show that kid boobs. Isn't that just commentary on American perspective, though? I mean, one of the best scenes in the whole movie, I think, and one of the most twisted is when the kids show up in their parents' bedroom and the two couples are in the bed and then the icing on the cake is the, you know, it's this total threes company moment, right? Like where the kids are like, oh my God, our parents are fucking these other people. And then the grandfather shows up like, that is amazing. You know, so it's like, I guess they could have shot the kids reverse where he never saw what was going on. I do think there is so much to be said about all of the cast members in this movie. Everybody kind of shows up in different ways. And I want to talk about that. But specifically, and this is actually a question that I have for both of you, since you both at various times portray and are glamorous horror hostesses, let's talk about Medusa, because clearly... She is a obviously a response to Elvira. It makes obvious sense. But what's your take on her? And is she a good horror host? She's a cunt. <laughs> mean. <laughs> so mean. <laughs> Knucklehead, you go first. 
Sorry for that outburst. I think she did okay. I, again, very mean, very pointed. I think obviously her job was to boobify really everything and kind of add to the sexualness through the television set. So I love a horror host dial in segment. But honestly, I felt as though I connected more to the mom and daughter more than I did with Medusa, just because I think they were giving more dynamic and just punchier lines and more funness. But I did enjoy uh, the Medusa character. I like the idea of Medusa. Of course, I love the idea that Elvira was and still is, but especially in 1986, like such a huge part of pop culture that this movie was going to like address it. You know, it's not subtle. It's completely their version of an Elvira because of the tits, you know, it's like, it's all right there. But what I guess I didn't like was what a bitch she was probably because, you know, I know Cassandra and she's so sweet, you know, but yeah, I think Elvira and this character obviously were Elvira inspired the character. And I think it was really satisfying and fun to see a character like this featured in the film so prominently. And just, you know, to be a movie that had a horror host, whether it's Elvira or not, you know, I love Fright Night because there's a horror host. In it. I mean, I love it for other reasons, but anytime a horror host shows up in a horror movie, I'm like, oh, this is fabulous. You know, Mary Warnov was originally approached to play that role. And she was like, no, I'm playing the mom and they were kind of like, well, that's a, that's a gift to have her in this movie as the mom. So here's the elephant in the room that we might as well jump into. How dare you? And she looks beautiful. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I've been called a lot of things. Proceed. I shall. So obviously one of the great joys of knowing you were going to come talk to us about this movie is knowing that your movie is all about otherworldly broadcasts and, you know, receiving something through the TV that the audience is not prepared for. And it's funny. I mean, it should have hit me immediately when you suggested this movie. But then as I was sitting there, I was like, oh, my God, this is so perfect because there's a kinship between Terrorvision and Heebie-Jeebie TV. And I just wanted to talk to you about that. You said you love movies about television and you love horror about TV. But what is it about that sort of meta angle that drew you to Terrorvision, but also drew you to put it into your own work? It's a great question. Thank you, Michael. I actually, it happened, I think, the time I saw it in a theater. I saw Terravision at my local boutique uh, cinema down the street, and it was a first Friday Fright Night. And I've seen Terravision a few times before, but I just got out of breakup and I was just like, you know what? I'm going to go do something myself. I'm going to go see Terravision down at the theater and just sit. And I was also in the middle of filming Heebie Jeebie at the same time. And when I watched it, I was just having this like big, cathartic like just i smiled the entire movie and i was also at the same time going oh my gosh i literally am copying and pasting so much of this movie into my own movie and i did not realize it also at that time really informed me of like what i wanted to do with my project and what kind of television already did i definitely knew that there was a lot of parallels and i think one of my favorite movies about tv is this one and also shock treatment is up there too but i think something that i realized with this is that i was thinking, oh my gosh, these are some great aspects that I'm also kind of touching on. But also, again, I wish this movie was more gay. I, I really think if it turned up the gay a lot more, and that's what I tried to do in Heebie-Jeebie was, okay, we have the meta TV stuff and we're, we're, we're paying homage to things of past, but what's different about what we're doing too? Yeah, I mean, I think what makes this queer first and foremost is Mary Warnoff. And even though Mary mm-hmm. is not herself queer, she definitely is an icon and it's 
especially if you're a cult movie queer. I mean, we're talking Principal Togar from Rock and Roll High School. You know, she was the warden on that incredible Charlie's Angels episode, you know, the lesbian warden. She, of course, was the co-star of Eating Raul, which is something we should definitely be doing on Midnight Mass one day. And she's just, I mean, Death Race 2000. Like, she's just in all these movies where if you're a queer kid and you're watching these movies, Mary steals the show. Of course, she shows up then later in queer icons work like Gregoraki's The Living End, I think. She's amazing. She's incredible. And she is one of these performers who's so fucking talented that she knew exactly what movie she was in. And she also knew how to kind of anchor it in some weird reality. Like she's able to play both camp and earnestness in this way that to me, it's like you're worth this entire film because your performance is so great. And to me, she's the standout performer. But I also think because the movie is so over the top and campy and silly and fun there's just an inherent queerness in that but you're right like as far as where they could have taken it they definitely fall short um now i want to talk a little bit about the monster and you know sort of get into like what are your thoughts about the monster you know what what does this alien <laughs> represent why this is there some sort of symbolism that i'm missing a big turd <laughs> With a wiggly Very turdy. Yes, yes. Garbage turdy. Going back to the kind of boomerangness of this film, it, to, for me, the creature design is something that kind of grew on me. At first, it was like, okay, it's, it's cute, it's cool, all right. But I think now I've come to appreciate it. And now, the more I watch it, you just realize how much slime it took to make it look that grotesque. One and two, just the oddness of the puppetry of it too. I, just the the rogue eye that pops up that I think yeah. looks like a big toe at times, just to look around. It's an alien trash pile turd that with with moving eyes at this point i would say it's a yes for me i'm very <laughs> much into it i've come to love the creature and i don't even think it has a name does it is it named remember that film? one alien refers to it as like the hungry beast and that's about as close we get to like a title yeah the alien that's constantly trying to warn them i myself am really into meta horror and i love this kind of horror that explores our connection with art and arts creation as well as our interaction with media and this movie i think is really sort of prophetic of a lot of these kind of films that come after because what does this creature do it eats and it it's there and like the warning is like it's going to basically devour your world and so if you think about it and this is just me kind of like my my thoughts on this movie it it sort of speaks to the fact that we consume media but media also consumes us. And at some point it becomes this cycle where it's like, you're gonna get caught up in it. I don't know if that's that's maybe me over reading the text here, or maybe it is just a, a John Carl Beekler googly-eyed monster, I don't know. No, Michael, I think you've hit it right on the head totally, the, the, the consumption of it too. It just looks like a big turd. And of course, you're bringing the intellectualness to it. But yeah, I agree. I completely agree that there is a commentary happening on how people consume media and the and the, the toxic relationship that it has mutually at times, too. Something yeah. else that hit me as far as the 80s of it all and the, and the themes that were popular was like realizing how much the success of E.T. influenced so many movies that came in the years after because I, I'd kind of forgotten that there was the whole sequence where they're like food this is 
food and like throwing pizzas in its mouth or whatever like and it's the kids who get to have this sort of connection with this creature and the creature accepts the kids and i I thought it was charming and i liked it and it was fun but i was like oh this is all et and this is completely one of like i swear there must be like a hundred movies that came out you know after et that was just like and the kids will be the ones who get to connect with this monster and the kids will will be able to speak to the monster in this way for no other reason i bring it up because i hadn't realized that before and and it's like oh yeah that's et like you don't see that before et in the sort of uh the numbers that you do after i guess you see it with frankenstein you know if we're gonna go way back but you know in general et really changed things the other thing i liked about this movie was the soundtrack i thought the soundtrack was really fun and there's this whole aesthetic to this film that is you know very specific kind of 80s experience and it's very pushed and the lighting's very pushed. And I wonder how you could speak to your aesthetic as well, because it felt like when Michael said that you had recommended this film and then I went and dug into the world of Knucklehead, I was like, oh, your stuff is really stylized and like very artistically created. And in some ways I feel like color wise and stuff, it reminds me of Terror Vision. I think it has to do with me being raised in the Nickelodeon generation and just watching a lot of youth programming, very ooey gooey slime from Nickelodeon. I think it, it it kind of has that parallel with the style of this movie as well. And that's a really a big reason why I was drawn to it. So I, I have to really give it up to Nickelodeon. And also I really love talking about the relationship between the creature and the kids. Um, I re- that's one of my favorite parts of this film too, is just the kids having that goofy interaction with the monster and, and you saying about E and its impact on that didn't even think about that but of course it's there too i would have loved to see the creature have like a drag makeover with the kids or some (laughs) some fun aspect like that and it also made me think if you took out some of the adult themes in this film it could easily be like a nickelodeon kids movie too and be really fun and and lighthearted at the same time so um yeah i I, again the aesthetic i would really give it up to kind of the 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 90s nickelodeon sliming of, of everything I definitely want to come back to that in just a second. Although I will say the thing about the kids with the monster and the food and then trying to teach it to say their names and it's this cute sort of E.T. homage that I think is really interesting is how fucking subversive it is at the same time. Because unlike an E.T. or a Mac and Me moment or whatever, the whole time they're like hanging out with the monster, we know that the monster has killed their parents and they don't know yet. And so there's just something like really kind of dark on behalf of the filmmaker to be like, hmm this is going to go wrong, just so you know. They're not going to befriend this monster in the way that you are used to. I love that you bring up slime. It's a topic that I like to talk about, but it's hard to to broach. We talk about it a little bit when we talk about the blob and, of course, when we did the stuff episode. But there was this sort of pervasive era of horror where slime was very prevalent and also children's TV. that like It was like Nickelodeon, and like the blob, like it was just like hard R movies and children's programming, like had this like handshake moment, like we agree on slime for this period in time. I'm kind of wondering one, if you have any thoughts in general about like what the connection between those is like, why do kids and like horror nerds attach to the same thing? But also why do we love slime so much? Slime is also like marketed to a lot. Like I think of Flome was also a big thing when I was a kid. And just, I feel like it's a very marketable thing and sellable thing. I, I have no idea why specifically it was was other than just more slime we need everything needed to be slimed (laughs) 
Speaking of slime, there are a few movies that, like, watching Terrorvision, as we've already discussed, made me think about and the connections in terms of the time period. One, of course, is society. I was thinking, like, slimy, gooey creatures and monsters. They were popular. Or the stuff, which I've already mentioned, you know, like, this sort of idea of just really fun creature features. And that could be silly and scary and gross and... I sort of miss that. I miss that period where movies could have sort of a tone that was so kind of deliciously silly, but also clearly made for adults, you know, with sexual themes and really gross violence. And I'm wondering if you all can think of any movies, and probably because I just watched this and I thought it was really refreshing. It's not slimy at all, but to me it had the same spirit was uh, Cocaine Bear, which I just saw, you know, I was late to it. But it it made me think like, oh my God, that reminds me of the fun of like an 80s horror movie where it's just like, we know this is silly, we're winking at the audience, and we're just going to have fun. And we're going to show you really disgusting, you know, shots of people being ripped to shreds, you know. I also agree with you. I just watched Cocaine Bear as well. And just, I think just, it just comes down to just the the line delivery, the the hamminess and line delivery is just something that, I don't know, slimy line delivery, we'll call yeah. it. What's the woman's name, Michael? You probably know, or maybe you do, Knucklehead. That great character actress who was in- Margot Martindale. Oh, she <laughs> is. She's great in everything, but oh she my is. God, I would watch Cocaine Bear again just for some of her line deliveries. I mean, fucking hilarious. Can we just acknowledge the sheer good pun work of saying line delivery while talking about a movie, Cocaine Bear? Just, <laughs> I'm sorry, but she was amazing. She was incredible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, kind of, you know, like Mary Warnoff. You know, you can show up for a movie like this with a script that's this silly and deliver an A++ performance. Okay, and that begs the question, and, and maybe you've already answered this, but there are so many dynamic performances in this movie. I think Diane Franklin is the valley girl, Mary Warnov is, is like the leotard-wearing swinging mom. But do you have a favorite performance in this movie? Who is your favorite character? Mary, I think really the the mother carried the film. And I think, again, the relationship of the mother and daughter in the beginning of the movie is really fun. And also good to see like a, a healthy mother-daughter relationship, too. Usually in, in films, it's like mom and daughter arguing a lot. But they seem to be on the same page with the stupid boys. I think, again, Susie is a great character and also carries throughout the story of the film to the end as well. So, again, I think the women were the ones to really do the home run for this. Yeah, you're right. Actually, I hadn't thought about that, but the grandpa is kind of useless in a way. And um, the boyfriend is useless. The father is useless. You know, the friend, the repairman or whatever he is, he's useless. Although, can we acknowledge Medusa's, like, swishy assistant? He's fabulous. He is fabulous. In my rewatch for this episode, I think I tuned into that character really probably for the first time in my years of watching this. And I was just like, you know, maybe the movie doesn't hit on enough queerness, but it also had an awareness that who's going to be hanging out with her? Him. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) And also just some great one-liners in this, too. I I love What in the Sam Hill would no longer say Heineken's, they're Heine, you know, give me a Heine, right. kiss the boot. Really just some great lines in this as well. Yeah, the script is actually hilarious. And I appreciate that it doesn't let up. It starts at the beginning, you know, at a level 10, and it carries the whole way through. And it also has a great title, Terror Vision. I mean, maybe I'm biased because my show is called Terror Vault. But I'm like, I love that title, Terror Vision. But I also love Videodrome, you know, another 
TV, you know, movie. I think titles, especially in the 80s, were spectacular. Heebie-jeebies is a good title, too. What does that mean? What's the derivation of heebie-jeebie? Why do we say that? Like goosebumps. Are heebie-jeebies goosebumps? Oh. Is that we're like, we're doing some English work today. Literary Probably. lessons brought to you by Midnight Mass. Uh, one thing that happens at the end of this movie uh, and our gay attache is that he drives off into the sunlight with a alienified Medusa, which I suppose in some ways set it up for the sequel that never happened. Knucklehead, if you were in charge of making Terravision 2... What's that movie look like? I love um, the idea of like the creature becoming like little babies. Like I love like little miniature ones too. I would definitely make it more musical. I think, again, we touched on this a little bit of just the the opening song being really, really iconic. But I think I would really make it a bit more musical throughout and adding more musical numbers, hamming it up a lot more. I want to see the creature more as like a critter's character. There's a lot of mini ones, like a Minions version of Terrorvision where it, we see <laughs> other families be impacted by the blob from space really yeah the blob from space which i guess is is like you say it's a shit pile of trash kind of as we've been talking i'm like oh my god see now you're young so you might not know of this show that i grew up watching called fraggle rock which was the jim henson sort of was it a spinoff of the muppets i don't know but it was about fraggles and there was this character called the trash heap and the trash heap <laughs> It reminds me of the uh, the creature from, uh, you know, Terrorvision. But the Terrorvision creature is more disgusting. And I'm glad that you said that um, the eyeball appendage looked like a toe because you know what <laughs> I thought it looked like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Terrorvision the musical would be the one that actually would get me the most excited for anything with this IP to continue. I think it, it could set itself up to kind of be like a kind of a little shop type of feel too, with a lot of fun there. I think the Medusa songs would be great. Um, so I, I think a, a Terrorvision musical should happen. Yeah, and I love that we keep kind of cycling back to that opening number uh, by the Fibonaccis. I think that they are uh, sort of in some ways the unsung hero of this movie because this movie immediately hits you with that cool track. I know they do other music throughout, but in discussion of this film, we talk about the production design. We talk about the character work. But I think that it really goes without saying that the music's really important. A hundred percent. I also um, loved hearing that they were trying to get other artists to do it as well. I think they were looking at the cramps and some other artists to do it. But I'm glad the Fibonacci's got it. It's truly the entrance to the film and it, it really sets it up just audio wise musically for the rest of the film. I love it. I love the little B-52s flair to it. I think it really strikes the tone of what you're about to see and yeah i think it's an iconic theme i love movies with theme songs too that like that is it's again pulling back on the tv tropes um i think i love a movie that has a good theme song and is unafraid to open the movie with the theme song when i was talking about like starting this movie at a level 10 turning it on and watching it the other night i was like oh my god that is the way to start a movie you know it is fantastic in fact i downloaded the song it's just fabulous Okay, so we've talked about Terrorvision and its inspiration on your film. And I'm sure our listeners are wondering, is there a way they can check out your work? You can find me online at Birthday Jake is my handle. You can follow um, my project with my two other collaborators, Adam 
uh, and Eric at at TV. Um, it's out on DVD, Blu-ray, VHS, all of the physical media, and it's going to be streaming on Screenbox um, this October, October 2023. Congratulations. That's thank fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, we're so excited. And we're excited to uh, spread the word of meta media and ooey gooey sliminess, all inspired by films like this, like Terravision. So, yeah. Well, and speaking of ooey gooey media, uh, as we like to do, last question. This was your boomerang movie, a phrase that I think we're probably going to steal for this show because I love that. That's okay because I think I stole gateway horror from you, Michael. I think you taught me that. So I you take it, take it. It's a cycle of cult giving. So anyway, you say this is your boomerang cult movie. You kept coming back to it, which means you had growth with it. So from the first time you saw it, you've spoke a little bit to it, uh, but to now... How has your relationship with Terravision changed? Every time I've watched it, I loved it more. And I think going on a journey with a movie like that, I think is really fun. And, and being able to experience many weird movies as possible too. Sitting down in a theater, actually enjoying it, sitting alone and really taking it and smiling ear to ear the whole entire time. I think appreciating the music, the casting, the writing, and the delivery of the writing being so impeccable, making really bold choices and just things that could be really uncomfortable and strange, like the, the swingerness, which again, it just kind of plays into the film itself. Every level I've I've gained an appreciation more and more every time I watch it. So, and now I'm at the point, I'm I, again, like I'm thinking of the musical version. So it, it, it's really kind of propelling me to, to continue just to <laughs> think more about television, even after I've been watching it for years now. Who knows, maybe you're the one to do the musical version. Who knows? Who would like to play the the creature? <laughs> Love that idea. Love the idea of uh, you doing a musical, and you know, long live Terrorvision. Also, thank you for bringing it to the Midnight Mass podcast. You know, this actually wasn't on our list, and um, we have a very long list. So, you know, you uh, really gifted us with this episode. So we can't thank you enough, Knucklehead. And you've been a wonderful guest. And I hope that folks who are listening go and check you out, follow you, and see the film, and stay in touch. Hey, thank you both so much for your time. And yeah, it was an absolute joy talking all things terror. All right, that was our fantastic interview with Knucklehead. I really love Knucklehead. I hope people will check out their work because it is kind of fabulous in this sort of unique way. I think right now, anyone that's dabbling in the drag arts has the challenge of not doing the thing that every other person's yeah. doing. And I think it's because drag is so popular now. There's multiple conventions for it. There's, you know, multiple TV shows for it. And these trends are so overwhelming that I love it when I see someone who's taking components of drag and doing something, you know, wholly unique. And I feel like Knucklehead is doing that. And I really love the fact that Heebie TV brings back that kind of commitment to slime that we uh, were talking about earlier. And in fact, I dug into that with Knucklehead as well. I really, really like the work that they're doing. I'm a fan of media that takes on media. And so I really felt like when putting together the Terravision episode to get someone like Knucklehead, who along with his collaborators is responsible for this thing that seems like a descendant of Terravision, it, it made so much sense. Well, that's part of being a fan and being part of a legacy. I feel like you and I are super fans of all this stuff. And then we continue to take our fandom and 
and turn it into inspiration to churn out new things with a twist. And you can see that in Knuckleheads' work. Like, Terrorvision clearly was inspirational to them, but then they also were able to create their own thing with it, which is just, I guess that's what art is in a way. It's cyclical and also uh, inspiring. It's that thing where when you think about it, the idea that there's nothing new under the sun, but there are new ways to do it. I find it to be comforting to realize there really isn't much that's new. Maybe there was when when Shakespeare was coming up with stuff. But even so, if you if you are to believe certain academics, even Shakespeare borrowed liberally, you know. Of course. And so stories tend to be regurgitated over and over and over again. And how lovely to see a super fan of Terrorvision, such as Knucklehead, make their own film and us to be able to see the influence that that was there. And this episode has been like one of my favorites. I know I say that a lot, but I just I love Terrorvision. I love that it's our Halloween episode. Me too. It's my favorite holiday. Shocking, I know. I know, but I like that we were able to take the orange and black of Halloween and inject a little purple. <laughs> <laughs> There's such an obvious eggplant joke <laughs> that I'm not. You know, I'm I'm more mature. You were dangling that low hanging fruit for me, but I'm not I, taking it. I'm not I actually an think that joke. it's a vegetable. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you were dangling that low hanging vegetable, that giant, bulbous, <laughs> big purple. Anyway, I digress. If you too want to befriend a bulgary giant slob of a mess and you're jealous because of my friendship with jinx monsoon <laughs> well then <laughs> oh God, she doesn't listen well then you too may be one of the children of the popcorn now <laughs> i wonder if she does listen Midnight Mass is created and co-hosted by Peaches Christ and Michael Verratti. The series is produced by Joshua Grinnell, Michael Verratti, and Heather Dunham. The Midnight Mass score and theme music was composed by Andrew J. Sepperly. Midnight Mass is a Peaches Christ production.